Hi, I'm Charles Galda, President of Vision New England and your host for the Church in Action program. We talk with New England leaders about the imperative to make disciples do justice, foster unity, and share Jesus to transform lives in New England. This week, I'm talking with Frank Vitale. He's the executive director at His Mansion, a Christian residential recovery community in Deering, New Hampshire. But people all over New England know Frank from uh, Groton Bible Chapel, Riverbank Church, uh, and Camp Berea. So he's been all over the place. So you may know him from other contexts. Uh, Frank, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much, Charles. It's a real pleasure to be here today and and to speak about uh, the issues we're going to talk about, and especially his mansion and how we can help. Thanks. Thanks. Vision New England, for folks listening, Frank, you probably know this already, but we just completed a big research project. We worked with more than 100 leaders around New England to document the issues we believe God was exposing in the church over the last two years and what he's calling us to change so we can survive and thrive in a post-pandemic world. There's a ton behind it, but the simple version is the post-pandemic church needs to make biblically literate disciples people who are becoming more like Jesus, disadvantaging themselves to love and serve other people, doing justice, right? Fixing those things in our communities that violate the pre-fall order God created in unity across the divides of race, gender, ethnicity, because when we do that, people want to know Jesus. Hmm. So Frank, that may be a good launching point into how do you think about the work you do um, and then the nexus of being a disciple? Yeah, I I think... um when we talk about justice and about being a disciple, I think automatically of Micah 6, 8, which says, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God. And the question before that is, what does God require of us? Very rarely do we read in scripture what God requires of us, but it's so clear here that justice is one of those issues. And if we're thinking about restoring people to the pre-fall existence, What that means for me is that Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship with God. They were healthy spiritually. They were healthy emotionally. They were healthy physically and in every other way. And so what we see at his mansion is we see people whose lives are broken and they need exactly that restoration uh, back to being in a healthy relationship, not only with people, but most of all with God. Yeah, and so, so that so it's pretty clear, and we're doing this whole series on justice ministries. I don't think we always think about um, everything that gets wrapped up in that, but I think you said it really well, right? If it's, if it's not that garden perspective, that healthy relationship, good relationship, close relationship, God relationship, it's part of injustice. That's right, and, we, and certain areas are more affected by this than others, although... As we talk about living in a pandemic, you know, environment in the last few years, the the drug issue and alcohol issue is endemic everywhere. But certain communities are hit harder because certain communities in cities and other places, the despair is greater and and financial ability is much less. And so as we look at that as believers and as people who want to follow Jesus, we are called to help everyone. And there are certain areas that cry out even louder, I believe, uh, for assistance. Mm. And so, Frank, maybe before we get too deep, can you give kind of people this the sketch, the history of, so what is his mansion? What do you do? Mm. How did it come to be? Yeah, when I, when I was telling people I was going to his mansion, some people said, we didn't even know you had a mansion. <laughs> well, the, reason, the reason it's called his mansion is because in 1971, 
three men got together and, and their and their wives and they said, we need to find a place because we're running into so many hippies who were drug addicts in the early 70s. And they were in the Connecticut area. They were in southeastern Connecticut, right near Groton Bible Chapel, uh, as as uh, as, a, as an interesting fact, uh, who was involved in the in the creation of the place. And they found a Victorian mansion on a river in Connecticut, a, a big old place. And they put their funds together because their wives wisely said, you may not bring any more recovering addicts home to sleep on the couch. The kids are too little. Yeah. And so they came up with this idea. They bought this old Victorian mansion and they started to bring in people who needed help literally off the streets. That mansion was active until about 1977 when it burned down because uh, a wood fired furnace was over fired by uh, one of the men who worked there. By the way, that person is still on our staff today. Wow. We don't let him, we don't let him stoke any more fires. Um, but it, it, it burned down and then the, his mansion ministry needed to move and they discovered this property in Deering, New Hampshire, and then came up here. And since 1977, we've been here on 320 acres. We have 19 buildings, and we've been helping hundreds of people over the years find restoration through the hope that only Jesus can bring. And just out of curiosity, so Groton Bible Chapel was one of the founding uh, churches, which I didn't know. Who were the other two? Uh, the other, it was three individuals okay. and, uh, and two out of three of them attended Groton Bible Chapel oh, at the time. I gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. Huh? Didn't know that. Now, Frank, how did you get to be at uh, his mansion? Actually, at the time I was working at a church in White River Junction, uh, Riverbank Church. And I got a call from a board member here at his mansion that I knew. And he said, you've done leadership transition a couple of different times successfully would you be willing to come down? We're experiencing a, a leader who's leaving, our, our chief executive officer's leaving. Would you come down and work with senior leadership? And I spoke to uh, a pastor at Riverbank and said, hey, do you think we have time during COVID uh, to allow me to come down a day or two a week? And they said, sure, we'd love for you to do that. It's, we want to be cooperative in the Lord's kingdom. So I came down and started to work and and to mentor and tormentor some of the leaders who were here and really got to love these people. And it was so exciting to see what was what God was doing in the lives of the residents and the servant leaders here that I fell in love with the place. But I wrote a transition plan for the board and said, I think you should hire a you know part time executive director, et cetera. And they said, we love your plan. Would you consider uh, being that person? And uh, my wife and I, Audrey, we, put, we prayed about that. And I said, I would love to uh, come down and help out. So that's how I got here. And I, I will mention, too, we also had uh, two nephews who came through this program as residents and mm. saw their changed lives, even in our own families. And Audrey and I had been supporters of the mansion work for years. And so it was an easy yes. And, and so you just think you're helping out. Turns out God has a plan that you're going to do more than help out. Yeah, isn't that funny, Charles, that sometimes we think we've got everything all lined out in our lives and then God brings up opportunities that we didn't even see coming and they turn out to be such joyful things. And that's happened to us two or three times uh, in our lives. It doesn't mean we shouldn't make plans, but it should be should mean we're open to God's plans. Right. 
And and I the other thing I just want to draw out of what you said because I think it's really important is uh, you know Chris Gepner the the lead pastor at mm-hmm. Riverbank Church is like this in so many ways and we see it in churches that thrive. It's the ones who say, look, it's because you say, well, how does that help Riverbank Church? And the answer is it doesn't. It helps the kingdom, and that's why we're going to do it. Yeah. And that mindset turns into thriving churches. I think Chris is absolutely one of the most open-handed leaders I have ever worked with. Yeah. Um, he's a dear friend. So now you, you mentioned his mansion deals with addiction, but I think mm-hmm. it deals with some other stuff too. What are some of the other areas of, of uh, ministry well, you're doing? We see residents come for abuse in a variety of ways, uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. See people who are struggling with eating disorders, see people who are struggling with depression. Uh, we okay. see primary, some guys who have ruined their lives by playing uh, video games in their parents' basement, and they have no life outside mm-hmm. of that. So all of these things uh, speak to the fact that not only has something else taken over your life, but you are out of relationship, not only with your creator, but probably with everyone else around you. And my perception is it's a younger uh, demographic you're serving. So kind of teens into 20s. Is that right or is that a misperception? Well, it, it's a, it used to be that way, but actually we're, we, we target 18 to 35. Okay. But we have had, we have had people lately uh, into their mid-40s and it's worked out fine. Okay. And, and so we, we still we keep it kind of fuzzy and we take it everybody case by case. Um, so some of our leaders, you know, we have people who stay in the dorms with our residents in the male dorm or in the female dorm, and they're kind of like college RAs. And some of these servant leaders are younger. They're, they may be in a gap year. They may be uh, on their way to grad school and they want to do something else, experience a different ministry before going on. Or they may be a very advanced young person who's just out of high school. It would be very difficult to put a 60-year-old resident, for instance, with somebody who's 20 because uh, the, the dynamic would be so different. Yeah. And and so tell me uh, about the process, if you will. So, so I'm in, and we'll talk a little bit later, hopefully, about how do I get in. Mm-hmm. But if I'm in, what will I do during my time there? How long does that last? How do I know when I'm done? Can you kind of walk us through what the program looks sure. like? Sure. Our program has three main phases. And depending on when you come in, and that's literally depending on what month in a, in a four-month cycle you enter, you could be here anywhere from 10 months to maybe more like 14 or 15 months. Okay. We try to have three graduations a year, and you work through these phases, um, and you have classes, you have counseling, uh, individual counseling and group counseling. You have um, group processing with others who are in your phase. And then, uh, Charles, we have a fairly a heavy work component, about 25 hours a week. And we think that that's an extremely important part of our program because residents get to work out what they've done in class in real relationship with others. And as I said, we're 320 acres. We're, we're a we're not a working farm in the sense that everything we grow um, is everything we eat, but we are a working farm in the sense that we have crops and we have planting and we have harvest time. We do maple sugaring and syrup. We do all of these things and our residents take part in all of that. We make our own apple cider. They're shoveling snow. 
Uh, we burn 250 cords of wood a winter here in our woods in our wood furnaces. And so um, guys and girls, they're stoking fires. The guys are working the wood lot. We've got a lot going on here. And we we see our residents change spiritually, emotionally, and physically because they're working hard. We feed them well. Lights out is relatively early compared to what they were used to. And then they get up uh, the next day and we do it again. Wow. And, and so what are some of the things during, during those kind of three phases, what are some of the things I'm doing in each one? Is, is it kind of coursework? Is it therapeutic work? Is it a combination? What? It's, it's both of those things. In the first phase, you're kind of looking at your life and what got you here? What's your family like? How did you interact with them? Um, what things did you learn that you should have learned? What things did you learn that you shouldn't have learned? Are these are some of these problems familial? You know, let's look at those things. And then the counselors interact with those things. The second phase is called inner healing. And it's a it's a time where you get close to your group, your cadre, and you're talking about all of those issues in very specific, uh, very specific nature. And you spend a lot of time in prayer. And I mean, hours in prayer a week. The third phase, um, you're doing um, relapse prevention and some other things to get ready to get back into get back into the world. And phase three is the only one which is co-ed. The first two phases are not. Okay. Some of the issues we have here are relational issues. And by the way, one of the distinctives of his mansion is we're one of the very few recovery centers that's co-ed. And we take pains to make sure that we hedge appropriately the men and women who are here to protect them and to model um, good relationships for them. Now, you mentioned prayer being a component of it. Mm -hmm. And so is the implication that I'm that I'm a believer before I come in and I know I'm going to do that? Or is that something I grow into or how does that work? Yeah, it actually happens in in all of those ways. We get people who don't know Jesus at all, and all they know is that we're a relatively free recovery center. And one of the distinctives that we have here is that rather than charging thousands of dollars a month, when you come and you are accepted into our program, there's some minimal fees at the front end, uh, less than $500. And then as long as you have a sponsor that sends you $50 a month, you can stay here for that entire program. So it's it's really quite, it's not quite affordable. It's ridiculously low in cost is really what it is. And that's all done because of, of generous uh, donors and some churches and a, and a few, uh, few foundations. So we'll get people who don't know Jesus, but somebody recommended them and they know that we are a faith-based operation. And so they at least have to be open to that. Secondly, we get people who come in and um, they're theologians. They're also drug addicts. And so we try to figure out the, the intersection of their faith with their addiction. And we try to pull those things apart and reestablish them in their faith, which supports healthy living. And then we get people who are, you know, I really do believe in God. And I think I said yes to Jesus at some point in my life. But it's not unusual to see people... Um, you know, make a more firm commitment to Christ here. And let me say at uh, at this point, too, that uh, we are not a place that when you get here, if you have medication that you need uh, for 
uh, for your life. We don't tell you to throw it all out and it's all faith-based. We will tell you that we don't want you on methadone or something like that because that's unhelpful. Uh, but if you have, if you have other issues um, and you need pharmacological intervention, we certainly support that. And we work with a local physician and, um, and a PA. Oh, that's a great, it's a great point. Now you, you, you mentioned that you know, if I get in, which sounds to me that there's an application or screening process, what does that look like? Sure. The, the application starts with an online uh, application. A resident will fill that out. And then we have an intake coordinator that goes through that and reads through and looks at the, the highlights and the lowlights of that application. And then they have a, a, a phone interview. The intake coordinator will do that. And they'll, they'll go ahead and they'll, they'll ask other questions. They'll try to put some fine points on maybe some of the things that the resident, the, the hopeful resident has written down. And then uh, that resident will then get turned over for a second interview to the program assistant um, for the men's program or the women's program. And then they'll decide whether or not the issues that are presented are ones that his mansion can handle. There are obviously some um, psychological conditions that are so uh, in need of um, full-time medical help that we can't do. So we are hopefully discerning enough to say, you know what, this isn't the right match for us. And occasionally we'll get someone who's not fully forthright on their application and we might have to do some further pruning. Yeah. And it's, it's a good point. Cause I, I, I know from some of the other ministries we work with that person can come in and not just demand more resources than you guys are capable of delivering, but they can really disrupt what's already happening there too. And, yeah, and, that's right. and it's really important that we set the tone here um, at his mansion to be receptive to new residents when they come in. And it's also really important that we don't add a personality or, or a set of problems that are just beyond us and that upset the equilibrium of folks who are already in process. And so give folks a sense, if you would, please. So does like 2% two, 2 of applicants, applicants get in, 98% order of magnitude? How likely is it? Well, it, it really depends on our, it really depends on our, um, our census. Right now, coming out of COVID, uh, we're starting to have a lot more applications come in. I just heard the intake coordinator say earlier today, I've got three people that we're talking about, uh, you know, today and we're in process with right now. We have two new residents coming in Monday this week. We just had two come in last week. And so we're starting to see people come in again. Now, during COVID, can you imagine you know, when we're, we're all sheltering and we're, we're quarantining and you have somebody who's got a, either an addiction problem or an issue with depression, we'd love to have you. Can you fly here? No, I can't. Once you get here, we're going to put you in a room by yourself and slide the meals under the door because you have to quarantine for two weeks. I mean, it, it was really, it wasn't quite a shutdown for us, but it was a hunker down. Okay. And we're starting to see that change now. So I would say if people, the people who apply, we're, we're probably above 50% okay. that, would be, that would be accepted. Um, and how many are you serving at any one time? Our, our max area is probably 16 uh, in each area. And right now, uh, right now we have, we have four women. And uh, as of Monday, we'll have nine guys. So, so you said 16 in each area? 16, uh, 16 men, 16 women. I'm sorry. I said, oh, okay. I gotcha. Um, and, and uh, the, so 
what is, how do you measure the effectiveness of this, especially compared to maybe secular programs? Hmm. Well, the, the gurus will tell you that um, 40 to 60% of people who do residential treatment relapse. Now, what they don't define is how long relapse is. Is relapse, if you're an alcoholic, is relapse one drink or is relapse um, going back to a, a lifelong uh, dependency on alcohol? So one of the things that we think, we think we're on the low end of that um, because I think it's, it's pretty common for people to leave here and within a year or two, they dabble back in uh, to what they, what they came here for. But we've seen so many people be successful. As a matter of fact, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary in our 51st year uh, in August. And we capped, our, we capped the event at 300. And we had to stop taking reservations after about three weeks because it filled up so fast. And uh, we have so many stories of success. Um, and one of the things we want to do desperately, Charles, is to follow up on people after they leave. We have no good mechanism for that right now. In our five-year plan, we're going, to, we're going to be looking for someone who is doing aftercare and making sure that not only are we getting uh, good information uh, about these people, but that we're, um, uh, we're actually connecting them to churches and making sure they're in healthy relationships. So we did a study with Wheaton College a few years ago, and they're doing a longitudinal study uh, for us. And we, we think right now we're beating the national averages, but uh, this, is a tough, this is a tough ministry. And so uh, we're looking to become better at that. Now, the, um, if I'm listening and I want to help, I want to participate in some way, what can I do? And if I'm listening and I know someone who needs help, mm-hmm. what can I do? Okay, a couple of things. Um, if you're listening and you are just interested in supporting our ministry, the first thing I would ask you would please add us to your prayer list. Please do that right away. We believe foundationally nothing happens here without prayer. And I would go so far to say it doesn't happen in our churches. It doesn't happen in any ministry unless people are actually spending meaningful time in specific prayer and coming before the Lord. So we'd ask you to do that. If you're struggling in one of these areas, go to hismansion.com and fill out the um, application. It'll say resident, it'll say apply, and just click that and that starts the process. Uh, If you're a church uh, missions group or you're looking for a short-term missions trip, you can come and visit. You can call us and get information. Um, We have uh, a, a bunch of one week long and weekend long missions trips this summer where teams will come even for team building. They'll come up and they'll be a part of what we do. They'll be working outside. They'll be working on specific projects. You can get involved that way. Refer our people. One of, the, one of our, uh, refer your people. One of our greatest needs is for those dorm servant leaders. If you're someone who's 18 to, to 40 and you want to come and in, in get into a program as a servant leader and become a, an RA for us, there's also an application process online for that. One of our counselors describes the servant leaders as uh, they're the nuclear control rods in our dorms. Without having those servant leaders, we cannot accept more residents. And then finally, um, if you're 
Uh, if you take uh, giving seriously with your tithes and offerings, we would invite you to financially partner with us at his mansion. And there are ways you can do that online as well. And what, what's the URL for the website? Is it hismansion.com? It's hismansion.com. Dot com, hismansion.com. Yep. And if you have any trouble finding it, let us know and we'll get you directed to uh, to his mansion too. Sure. Frank, maybe before we, just two minutes, what's a story of something you've seen God do recently that you think would be uh, encouraging to folks? There's a, a, a young guy who came, family guy, came from uh, states away and he had everything money could buy, family business and uh, cocaine addiction. Two young kids, a, a great wife, and he came here and I, and I met him last May. He just just graduated recently. He was one of the most arrogant guys you'd ever meet when he when he walked onto the property. I can do this. I can do that. I, I, I don't know why I'm here. I, I know I think I need some help. And, you know, to watch that young guy melt over the process of being here for a year and see God change his heart and see God change his countenance and see God change the way he wants to take care of his family and how dedicated he is to his children and his wife and how much he couldn't wait to go home. Um, he was he just left a few weeks ago and his last day here, he's walking around with a box of gifts for people. Wow. He came into my office and said, hey, I've got something for you. But more than that, he said, I just want you to thank I, I want to thank you for loving me and for and for being my friend while I was here. And you know, uh, Charles, it just it, it, I just break down and cry over that because you see uh, what Psalm 30 talks about about being taken out of the pit and mm -hmm. and being put in a better place. And we see God doing that over and over again, and it's just thrilling. And the the other thing I would say is that. I never expected to want to stay at this ministry. I thought I was a short-termer here and just coming down to help out and, and use some leadership skills to encourage other people. Mm -hmm. And this ministry is so powerfully magnetic that I wanted to stay and continue to be a part of it because I get a front row seat, ringside seat at what God is doing. And he's restoring broken lives through the hope of Jesus each and every day here. And so I hope that answers your question. But it does. So it answers it beautifully. That's great, Frank. Thanks so much for giving us that picture. It's so helpful sometimes to hear the story and see what God is doing through your eyes. And so, Frank, thanks for being with us, but thanks for this critical ministry in New England. Sure. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about his mansion, and thank you for all that you're doing. Thanks. And I'd also like to thank Jessica Mangano, our producer. Uh, and our listeners, we hope this discussion helps us be the people of God doing the work of God, doing justice, because as you just heard Frank sh sh share, it changes people's lives. Mm. Amen. Uh, and you can visit us at visionnewengland.org for past episodes and resources and click donate to partner with us to accelerate evangelism in New England. This program is brought to you by our friends at the Luis Palau Association who are dedicated to proclaiming the good news, uniting the church and impacting cities worldwide. God bless you and thanks for listening.